This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado, The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts. What is Crackalackin, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Pavalli, coming at you without my co-host Adam Brommel today as we go into yet another one of our would-have-become trademark, mega-long, super-in-depth, multi-topic episodes. Um, I'm going to just get into some news and recent events, but we have a guest today. We're going to be talking about the Detroit Pistons outlook with Lazarus Jackson, who is an editor for the Detroit Bad Boys. He's also the host of the Pistons versus Everybody podcast that is hosted by the Blue Wire Network, just like us. Follow him on Twitter at Laz Chance. That's at L-A-Z-C-H-A-N-C-E. We have a great conversation. And look, if you're not a Pistons fan, listen to this anyway. We're doing deep dives on every single team, joining them with national topics so that everyone has a reason to listen. But we really encourage you to, to go all the way through and I'll do this at the top since I won't remember at the end. Please continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us wherever you're getting your podcasts. Um, subscribing and downloading every episode is first and foremost the biggest thing. So if, if this is your first time here, please strongly consider doing that. Um, we're throwing timestamps out there to make to make it easier for you to jump around if you would like to. Also, though, whether or not you're on iTunes, that is the second best way to help us out. Just head over there, throw us a five-star rating, write a review, even if it's with criticism. We're always reading those. We are sort of close to um, the triple century mark there. So if we can get 12 more ratings and reviews, of course, with them, we would really appreciate that. I don't want to always plead with you guys to do it. But alas, here I am doing it. So please heed my words. And once we get a 300, maybe I'll only mention it once at the top and instead of the end or, or vice versa. So help me shut up and rate, review, and subscribe to us. Before I get into what's going on with the NBA finals and then some some important news notes, just a, another quick shout out to our sponsors, Bet Online and DoorDash this week. This podcast would not be possible without them. Let's start talking hoops though. So We'll go into the NBA Finals first. Some of you may be listening to this on a Friday. Some of you may not be. Um, this is, I, I think it's still evergreen because the Miami Heat just have some things they have to deal with. And after game one, the, the biggest topic really was the Goran Dragic injury. He has a torn plantar in his left foot and he has not given up hope of returning apparently, but that's like an injury. I know you're in the finals and so I guess just talk yourself into playing if you can. But that's not an injury that I think you can bank on him coming back from. He's 34, and that stuff is painful. I even winced just talking about it. As Bobby Marks of ESPN noted, Joe Johnson suffered a similar injury 
during game two of the 2013 first round matchup with the Chicago Bulls. And while he did get injections in his foot before each game, he was struggling and he just really wasn't that effective. Shot ended up shooting two of 14 in a game seven loss. Again, all per ESPN's Bobby Marks. So when you lose Goran Dragic, like that is, is huge. And I would declare this series over. I don't want to say it's a sweep. Um, the Heat are scrappy. They've gotten here just because they have this obsessive focus and intensity and execution. That only gets you so far, though. And you're going up against top-end talent in Los Angeles, and I promise I won't solely dilute this argument down to that. But they have the two best players in the series with Anthony Davis and LeBron James. You were already kind of at a disadvantage there, and I think you could come into this series like I did where I considered picking Lakers in five. I ultimately picked the Lakers in, in six just because of how well the Heat have played so far. But we're getting to a point where even when the people you think on Los Angeles in terms of their supporting cast don't have the games uh, that you want them to, someone else will. Uh, even when... Uh, Rajon Rondo isn't hitting his shots. Like he's still making an impact as an extra ball handler now. And we've seen him a little bit more engaged on defense. The Alex Caruso minutes are just absolutely huge for the Lakers. And that's not a fluke. Like it, it never was a fluke, but like we're well past the whole Alex Caruso as novelty thing. It's been known that he's fairly good for a while. Even Dwight Howard doesn't have the best game, but you know, he uh, didn't score, but made some okay plays on, on the defensive end. Then he comes out, the Lakers are going smaller. And then that's when they destroy the heat after Miami jumped out to that 13-point lead in Game 1. It's just, without Dragic, that all just becomes even more overwhelming because the Lakers were well on their way to winning that game. And again, enter really as heavy favors to begin with. But in Dragic, I don't, without him, I don't see how Miami's half-court offense really functions or gets to the level of solvency. And it's exacerbated by the fact that Bam Adebayo, as I record this, is listed as doubtful for Game 2 due to the next strain that he suffered. And just looking at Dragic's absence, though, specifically, Miami's half-court offense has absolutely plummeted uh, in efficiency when he's been off the floor during the postseason. And look, if you have Bam, I think he really helps you. And in fact, he has the Heat's biggest uh, among rotation players, half-court offensive rating differential on the team. At the same time, like he's just not that traditional prober, someone who's going to face up and uh, put pressure on set defenses, or you know, you're not going to look at Dragic to draw a ton of fouls or even necessarily get to the rim, but he has the, the pull-up jumper in his arsenal. He's slippery when he's um, driving in inside the arc, and he is there. You know, he's driving over 14 times per game during the playoffs, which is the second most on the Heat, shooting better than 50% on those looks. So having that in-between option, someone who's going to be able to fire up off the dribble a little bit more. Bam just gives you more of that facilitation, um, and and he might need to be more, in more standstill positions in, in a lot of this than than Dragic. And so not having him, like it, it feels like it's going to be absolutely crippling for Miami's offense. You still have Jimmy Butler. Tyler Hero has played well overall in the postseason, but how much can you actually count on him to pick up this kind of slack when a lot of this stuff, look, he's had his games and he's been better at um, getting through traffic and like finishing through contact than I ever would have imagined in this postseason. A lot of his success, though, like what happens when defenses aren't keyed in on both Dragic and Butler, and they only have to worry about one of those two. And the other thing is, is like some of Miami's lineups without Dragic just have not been good offensively. Um, their most used one, which has been good offensively, but it's still a net minus in the playoffs, um, almost a minus seven points per 100 possessions. The fact of the matter after that is too. There's no Dragic, no, there's no lineup without Dragic that had logged 
up to 50 possessions aside from one of them um, entering game one. And so now you're dealing with all these small samples when you have to tinker your rotation. And look, it's good to get Kendrick Nunn in there. I tend to default to him just being overrated at this point. It's not even just a matter of people are saying he came out of nowhere when he really didn't. It's just, I don't know that I trust someone who is so much better with the ball in his hands and seems like he's a little bit uncomfortable playing off the ball. Um, That being said, someone who's a legitimate threat pulling up off the dribble from three, and he got some minutes, got the chance to run some pick and rolls in game one. That could end up being huge for the Heat just to getting him him acclimated. And if he can do, you know, he's not going to replace Dragic playmaking. I don't think he ends up really replacing even the pressure that Dragic puts on defense when the ball is in his hands. But he might come close. And he's, he's obviously their best option because, you know, you're already playing Tyler Hero a bunch. Replacing Bam is arguably harder, just... Miami is not a team like they can do okay if you need to limit looks at the rim but like when it comes to actually protecting the rim and the paint like they've been crucified there all season uh, essentially and definitely you know post January 1st post December 1st however you want to look at that and now your options are probably play Kelly Olynyk a bunch of minutes because the Andre Godala's backup center while a lineup that definitely intrigues me and work in the conference finals isn't going to fly even when you're going with up against the Lakers with an Anthony Davis at, at center. And it's, it might even be more untenable if the Lakers are going with dual bigs, having Dwight and Davis on the floor at the same time. And there's just all of these problems one on top of the other. And looking defensively, just at the matchups in general, uh, Miami switched a bunch in the first game. And I don't know, I don't know how sustainable that is because it didn't look sustainable in that game. And if you're really worried about having, Jimmy Butler go up against LeBron for for too many possessions like then just use Andre Godala on him and uh, maybe try and find ways to get Jay Crowder more reps against him because there can't be situations where he's just going up against Tyler Hero and he didn't even shoot per the data against Tyler Hero specifically but Miami was basically as a team on the possessions in which Hero at least partially defended LeBron James Los Angeles, excuse me, as a team was averaging around two points per possession. And so like just those situations, whether it's Kendrick Nunn, whether it's Tyler Hero, like it just can't happen. And so I don't necessarily, I won't say I know what the answer is, but can you get away with saying that one of these guys between Davis and LeBron is going to eat? And so rather than switching, rather than playing man, rather than even trying to like get back to his own, can you just throw more doubles, more traps at LeBron, just because he's the primary ball handler, and force Anthony Davis to beat you. Obviously not on open looks, but to the point where he's done fantastic of hitting these unassisted shots during the playoffs. Like, just continue to force him to to make those shots, Um, even giving up the occasional catch-and-shoot three opportunity, wide open or not. That has to be fine, too, because those were shots that he was fairly shaky on during the regular season. He's shooting about 40% on them, though, in the playoffs. Like, you can live with that. I'm not even sure if it works, though, just because now you're talking about, well, what do you do with Anthony Davis anyway? Like, we're just going to say, oh, you can go for for 40 points. And he's even shown that when he's going to run into traffic, he's done done a pretty good job of of passing out of it. It feels like a no-win proposition there. And it gets easier if you have Bam, because I would just say, like, look— Bam needs to see more time on Anthony Davis than Jay Crowder. Like that would just be uh, have Bam just like stick with him and track him everywhere. If your rim protection is not great to begin with, and especially if there are the lineups where Davis is going to be at the five anyway, and you don't have to worry about a Dwight Howard, just go that route. Uh, I'm I'm sure Spalmelcher has something up his sleeve. I don't know how accurate a referendum game two will be on their approach, just because if they don't have Bam, he's someone you expect to return this series. Whereas Dragic just feels feels unlikely. I'm not saying this 
like because I have any information or because I'm a doctor. It just, you know, a torn plantar is nothing to really screw around with. And I know these are NBA finals. I know to just go for it. Still, it feels just I, I I'd be I'd be surprised if he comes back. And if he does come back, I'd be surprised if he has a a, a huge net positive impact on Miami in general. I don't want to be too down on the Heat, though, if you can get to a point where, look, they did a good job. Like, if the Lakers supporting cast, if you're going to have Contavious Caldwell Pope shoot 3 of 10 from the floor, uh, if you're going to have uh, Ray John Rondo, I think he was 2 of 7 or something and, and was 1 of 5 from 3, like, that, those nights can happen from Los Angeles' supporting cast. And that that's encouraging. The other encouraging thing would be they were, a, the Heat were a minus 12 points in the three-point battle. That's not going to happen Every single night, even if you don't want to write the Lakers' performance in Game One off as a fluke, uh, Miami shot just a disastrous percentage on wide open threes. They were four fifteen in that in that game, twenty six point seven percent compared to LA's thirty eight point five percent, which is actually right around where they should be. I think where the biggest difference was is that when you've put any sort of pressure on Los Angeles' shooters, they really haven't performed all that well. Uh, they're averaging under one three-point make per game when defender is within two to four feet, they were three of five on those looks in game one. And so you remove even two of those, and that differential is sort of cut in half. Miami can kind of look to that as, I don't know if you would call it a controllable, but there's going to be regression and progression to the mean there, where the Heat are going to shoot better from three. They they were a nightmare from above the break in this game. Uh, specifically, I had this jotted down. They were four of 24 on above the break threes. That's 16.7%. They were the second best or the absolute best above the break three-point shooting team during the regular season. They've been not as good in the playoffs, which is, or they've been the best above the break three-point shooting team in the playoffs, excuse me. And during the regular season, they were second in above the break three-point percentage. So like that's going to normalize for them. And I think that ends up being just, just a monster deal. So the other thing that I think you could probably look at is 14 free throws for them is not enough. I don't know how controllable necessarily that is. And I need to do another Mekulpa here because I'm window surfing. The Heat were first in above the break three-point percentage during the regular season. They hit 38.5% of their above the break threes. In the postseason, they have ranked lower. They are, they are eighth with 35.7%. Even though that's not great, that's with... Their perform their performance in game one caked in there. They've been much higher after that. That's still a way higher percentage than sixteen point seven percent. So that's something that's going to normalize for them. The other the actual question I would have is: you could say that there will be a progression to the mean here. Um, Goran Dragic isn't necessarily someone who they depend on to generate free throw looks, but will they go up from the number of fourteen that they they had in game one? Because you can't lose that battle as egregiously as you did during that that first game where you only have those 14 free throws. you were They were third in free throw attempt rate in the postseason entering Wednesday night. And so to drop off that substantially, uh, you would imagine that it will it will go back up again. And someone like a, you know, you could you, you point immediately saying, well, Dragic isn't going to have you know, zero free throw attempts in, in most games, but you're not going to have Goran Dragic. And so how do you put more pressure on defenses in the interior? That A lot of that's going to fall to Kendrick Nunn where if he's playing 20 minutes, like you can't have him just not attempting free throws at all, particularly when LA's out there and they're attempting 27 to year 14. And that's like, it doesn't, 13 free throws doesn't necessarily feel like a huge difference for some reason. But when you look at it, um, the Lakers 
looking at points scored, we're a plus 14 from the foul line. And like, that's just absolutely monstrous. So can you figure out a way to, to generate more free throw attempts? Jimmy Butler's going to be a huge part of that. Five free throw attempts feels low for him. I, I think the issue would be, you know, bam, you kind of rely on for some of that as well. And if he's not in game two, you're not going to get that from a Kelly Olenek. You're not going to get it from a Myers Leonard. And and perhaps that's the appeal of like playing smaller because you could have Andre Godala with the ball in his hands and it's just a, a smart player. And uh, maybe he can do that for you. Just put that little extra pressure on the Lakers interior defense. I I'm really just spitballing here. And so that's another thing then as I'm talking myself into it, that just really doesn't feel like Miami's necessarily in control of. Uh, you've lost your you know, Bam Adebayo is the second highest free throw attempt rate among the Heat in the playoffs, so he's gone. You can expect more from Jimmy Butler. I think that helps. Um, Kelly Olynyk's actually fourth in free throw attempt rate for this team during the playoffs, and then you also have Derek Jones Jr. Where if you can get him going downhill, like you maybe run some pick and rolls with him um, as a screener, but then the, the Lakers aren't you know they're not going to fear his jumper in those situations. So those are just a little bit more easier to defend. Can you just then plan on getting out in transition more? Something that I might consider is like, can you just run wing wing pick and rolls to death with a Jimmy Butler, Jay Crowder, just effectively two shooters. There's that, is that Tyler hero and Jay Crowder situation. And yes, I'm calling Jay Crowder a, a shooter here, even though his, his splits from deep have just been absolutely wild. 35.7% for the playoffs did shoot it materially better after a very poor conference finals in Game one against the Lakers, he was four of seven from beyond the arc. Those are things that they could maybe try. Again, I'm I'm not I've given thought to this, but I'm also sort of just spitballing in real time because that's how hopeless this situation feels right now. I don't want to count out the Heat. There's that level of stop underestimating Miami, you dumbass. Like that's absolutely there. At the same time, no Dragic, not having Bam out of bio, just knowing that the Lakers were were probably better to begin. Not probably, they were better to begin with. And look, you couldn't even argue that LeBron James just has a more pronounced performance in game two. He, he threw up 25, 13 and nine. He only took 17 shots. It feels like he could take a great deal more. It feels like he could get going downhill even more, particularly if Bam Adebayo isn't going to be in this game. So Miami's best hope, aside from that three point uh, discrepancy normalizing, aside from getting to the, to the line more is to probably hope that the supporting cast for the Lakers continues to struggle offensively um, because if the Lakers on most nights get what they do out of Rondo, again, two of seven, Kuzma, one of seven, Contavious Pope three of 10, you should technically be in a better situation. Uh, but because LeBron James and Anthony Davis were so good, because, you know, you're getting great minutes from, from Alex Caruso, um, even just getting serviceable minutes from, from Markeith Morris, there's, I, I don't know what the answer is. Like, it's not just cross your fingers. Uh, if, if you can get the three point stuff to normalize and get to the foul line more, that's probably your best bet. And just maybe you get really freaky with the rotation. Um, are we going to see a bunch more of Solomon Hill and how much does that help? He was 0 4 from three in game one. Um, how much more bandwidth does Andre Godala have? 25 plus minutes in game one. And look, for the record, you can't read too much into single game plus minus, but Tyler Hero was a minus 35 in a game. Miami lost by 18. And look, the game just wasn't that close even when you were watching it, so that accounts for some of it, but he was a minus 30 at halftime. Iguodala was a minus 25 there. And maybe that's also something you look at is Tyler Hero specifically is going to have better games. 6 of 18 from the floor, 2 of 8 from 3. The Lakers can put 
you know, they, they have a lot of athleticism to throw at him, but he's also shown that he can hit some difficult shots during the playoffs. And so a few of these things, like it's, it, again, I, I want to stress, it's not a matter of crossing your fingers that you can uh, get more free throws, but some of these things are going to normalize in the Heat's favor. It's just that you have to look at the Lakers and, and wonder, is there going to be enough regression to the mean, or are they going to have enough struggles for the Heat to really be in a position to win? And if you miss Bam for more than this game too, because we're assuming the Heat are going to be down 2-0. to And if they're not, look, kudos to them. If you miss him for more than a game, then it's just absolutely, hilariously, hopelessly futile for them. That's just how it feels. And so that's where I'm at with this. The, the Dragic absence um, right now and then whether he comes back, that just feels like a a blow that even the Heat are not going to be able to withstand. You've counted on restaurants. Now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you the food you're craving right to your door. I can confirm this. I've been using DoorDash quite frequently throughout this pandemic that we're all trying to survive, mostly whenever I've just been jonesing for some wings. Could be the middle of the week. Could be looking for a cheat night. I just, I need my wings sometimes. Large orders. I'm talking like, 50 wings or, or more, uh, and I can eat those pretty much in, in one sitting. So DoorDash has been great, whether I need uh, contactless delivery or even if I'm just placing a pickup order, they make that super easy as well. Just open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with a new contactless delivery drop-off setting. Choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and the Cheesecake Factory. But also, many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery too. That's what I've been doing, uh, using all these local smaller businesses to, to get my chicken wing fix. DoorDash has them all. Love that, that they're all just located on there. And right now, get this, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. That's $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app and enter code BLUEWIRE. Don't forget, that's code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Two more topics that we definitely need to jump into is Doc Rivers was hired by the Philadelphia 76ers to be their next head coach. He signed a five-year deal per per Woj that it was something that happened very quickly. He left the Clippers basically 72 hours before the announcement. The And I've said this multiple times on the podcast, I'm reticent to comment too heavily on head coaching hires and just critiquing them because they just know, even the worst NBA head coach just can see and read and think the game so much better than I can. This feels like an, an okay fit, an interesting fit, one that could really work out in Philly's favor. I'm still just sort of like, eh, on it. Because you look at what happened with the Clippers, you have the athletics report that there was strife in the locker room and he didn't really do much to unite it. We've seen the Clippers blow 3-1 leads in the past. We know that um, the dynamic during the Lob City era was fractious, particularly towards the end, and that players weren't necessarily happy with how Doc Rivers handled it. And so while he means so much to the game, and just with this social justice stuff, the things he said after the, the Donald Sterling racism debacle, with the Clippers, like he's absolutely important. I have, and he's he's a great coach. Um, as people pointed out, you know him coaching Ben Simmons after having Blake Griffin, a crafty big, and then Rondo, sort of this non-shooting guard at that time. Is he able to unlock something in Ben Simmons? Is he able to just able to coax something more out of Ben Simmons? It seems like if you wanted outside volume from Simmons at all, you would have gone with a Ty Lue or or Mike D'Antoni there. And I'm just 
knowing that there's issues, this was per Keith Pompey of the Philadelphia Inquirer, like stated this, and it's just sort of this open secret that some Sixers fans do seem like they refuse to admit. The dynamic between Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, not just functionally, but emotionally, psychologically, doesn't seem like it's the greatest. And so is he the guy, Doc Rivers, to take you through this? I honestly don't know. I don't think you could guarantee that Mike D'Antoni would have been any better. Maybe he gets a little bit more inventive on on offense, but some of the stuff that the Clippers teams did, particularly before this Kawhi, Paul George era, like that was great, that last season Clippers team. And so Doc Rivers, I'm not trying to box him in anywhere. And I think that's, I mentioned this on Salman Ali's podcast. He hosts uh, Red Nation Hoops, also Blue Wire podcast, that I feel particularly among black head coaches that we coffin them into these stereotypes where it's they're these rah-rah coaches. There are these predominant leaders. And I do think that Doc Rivers can be a good leader. And I would say this about Ty Lue, who I, w- I would think would even be more of just a galvanizing presence here. Um, but with Rivers specifically, I almost worry about the opposite. It's he's this coach who's kind of, I don't want to say hung back, but he's coached so many veteran teams. He's not someone who's going to force shoot arounds, not going to force practices during the middle of the season. I'm not sure if that's what this Philly team needs. They feel like they might need a level of forced accountability a little bit more rather than this independence. And maybe Doc Rivers can adapt to what he was doing for the past few versions of this um, Clippers team. And perhaps the 2018-2019 season is just proof of that, where they went through some turnover. Um, They weren't even really expected to make the playoffs. They didn't have that conventional superstar, and yet Tobias Harris played so well, Danilo Gallinari played so well, Jake Gilgis-Alexander played so well for them. And that's like, that's... That's where I'm. That's what I'm getting at here. Is I don't want to box Doc Rivers into saying he can't handle this situation. I just feel like we haven't seen him in anything resembling it. Uh, most most certainly in the near, like past, but even even in the distant past, going back. But on the flip side of that, he's also coming off of coaching Tobias Harris through his best season, essentially in 2018, 2019, for at least most than half of it. Anyway, is there something he can unlock there? I would remain skeptical a little bit of that, like maybe more, a little bit more in the postseason, but he was never even at the peak of his parents in LA, peak of his powers, not parents in LA, wasn't someone that you could count on to be the the Jimmy Butler type in crunch time. Like, yeah, there's a level of shot creation there. There's not the same table setting. There's not the same pressure being put on the rim. And that's why I think for this team, like that's what's going to define this Doc Rivers hire, and maybe it was any coaching hire, is the personnel actually more so than the coach. And so I'm, I'm looking at this through the lens of, well, will Doc Rivers change this team enough as currently constructed for it to be a success? And that's probably not the way to actually look at it. It's can they do enough on the margins to make this team a better fit together on the court? Like forget about the off the court stuff. Like maybe that's where the main concern is for, for Doc Rivers. On the court, like this, no matter who's coaching, I don't know that this team is a great fit for one another. It's not trade Joel or Ben Simmons just yet. That's just been the Sixers aren't going to go that way. ESPN Tim Bontemps reported this a while ago after they were eliminated, I believe. Uh, But can you move? uh, I'm assuming that Rivers would want to keep Harris, but can you figure out a way to move Horford? Like, what do you do to sweeten that deal? I mean, if you don't, like, does Doc Rivers empower these? players in any different of a way? Does he like throw out some different lineups? Does he have more of the cachet than Brett Brown to be like, Hey, Al, you're, you're coming off the bench, like hardcore. It's not even a matter of you'll still play starters minutes, but we're going to pay you all this money. You're going to play 14, 15 minutes per game. And, and that'll be that. I, I honestly don't know. Uh, they still feel like they need to make moves on the margins to open up everything. And whether if that's not trading 
uh, Al Horford or even a Tobias Harris or finding a smaller scale move to, you know, they can step ladder some stuff because they have Mike Scott, they have Zaire Smith. So you're looking at a combined almost $8 million in salary there, I believe. And so you can do things to move up from that. Uh, is there any just like free agent move that, that they can make to add another layer of shooting and ball handling? Does Doc Rivers unlock something and shake Milton? Like, is he going to be the real deal for a full season there? Not going to go too much longer on this because we do have a Sixers look ahead podcast coming to you. We were waiting for the head coaching hire, and I believe it'll be up uh, on Monday if you're listening to this on, on a Friday. So get excited for that. The final note I will say Josh Richardson kind of feels like a Doc Rivers player, and I'm interested to see how he does under him. Next up, and finally, some Kyrie Irving talk because because why not? We haven't done that on this podcast in in a minute. Uh, two of his quotes from a podcast with Kevin Durant are making the rounds now. This transcript is comes from CBS Sports, and he's referencing the Nets's hire of Steve Nash. I don't really see us having a head coach. Irving said, "KD could be a head coach. I could be a head coach some days." Durant agreed with this in the sense that he called it a collaborative effort in Brooklyn. And like, that's not too spicy. Everything in the NBA is a collaborative effort. The coaches defer to their stars. Steve Nash is also new to this. So you have to lean on your stars. Irving's comment is just more curious to say, I don't really see this as having a head coach. What does that even mean? Like, just what does that even mean? I know Steve Nash skipped the line and that's a fact as well. He still is the head coach of the Nets. I don't like you have to, maybe this is a discussion they've already had with Steve Nash. Maybe it's just a, a matter of, you know, a weird comment speaking in the moment. I totally get that. Uh, I don't, I just don't even really know what to make of it. It just seems like that's not something you say off the cuff would, would be my guess. The other thing that he said is this per the New York post. One thing I've always been comfortable with. I felt like I was the best option on every team I played for down the stretch. Irving said on the ETCs with Kevin Durant podcast. This is the first time in my career I've looked down and be like, that motherfucker can make that shot too. And it'll probably do it a lot easier. Now, everyone was quick to point out that Kyrie Irving played with LeBron James for three seasons, which is a fair thing to point out after a comment like that. Some of us went as far as to post graphics of Kevin Durant's like crunch time efficiency for his career versus LeBron's, and LeBron outstrips him clearly. Uh, Irving, of course, he came out with a rebuke to it, and uh on social media and he basically said that this was a you know a a media driven thing from clickbait society clickbait society was his words he also said again for the new york post why must it always be brother against brother why if i'm addressing anyone i'll say their name come on y'all don't listen to the false narratives let people live their lives it's just a game talk about the art talk about the sport we talk openly we talk freely but because we live in a clickbait society it becomes something bigger I like kind of get that sentiment a little bit, and there are narratives that people jump on. Uh, there's a level of, again, he's speaking. Is it off the cuff, and he's just really trying to build up Durant? At the same time, like, dude, come on. You can't expect people not to read into those comments, given the circumstances under which you left Cleveland, and you won a title in Cleveland. Playing with LeBron is not just something that you forget. And so this at best, was just poorly phrased. And I don't think we need to put pit NBA players against each other. Like, I just don't. And I know that people are going to take sound bites, small pieces of them, and just run with it. Like, I, I get that part of it. And there can be a level of, of you know, a level, a lack of accountability to it all. And myself on this podcast can be guilty of perpetuating it at points. This is just like, I don't understand it with Kyrie. Is He's clearly smart. 
like if you're going to say something like this, whether it's an accident or not, it's going to be interpreted as something. Don't blame the media or fans for looking at a verbatim quote and wondering why you said it in that it framed it in that way. Like, just come out and say, I didn't mean it like that. I'm not saying he even owes it to us that if you really don't care, then don't then don't say anything like don't don't acknowledge it. But he said these words. It's just such a curious case. And I've look, I've said on this podcast as someone who will make jokes about the Kyrie situation. It does feel that certain coverage of him is unfair. And like we went through it with the Disney bubble for the NBA and when the players were deciding if they wanted to go or not, like he made actual great points and they were dismissing them because of the source. It was Kyrie. That's really unfair. I don't know how culpable he is in that framing just because things like this happen and he's had the, you know, when you look at his Instagram or, or things that he says, it feels like he's trying to be too philosophical, too intuitive, introspective, whatever. But I also, I don't know what's going through his mind, but I do know that he said this, like he said, this is the first time in my career I've looked it down and been like that motherfucker can make that shot too. So I don't know if he thought, and he also said it, and he'll probably do it a lot easier. Maybe he just thought it'd be more difficult for LeBron. Did he think that LeBron's instinct is a pass first anyway, where Kevin Durant's not going to feel like that? Maybe he can explain that, or he doesn't have to. He doesn't owe us anything, but he said this. So the Kyrie Irving stuff, this net situation, it was always combustible following the Kevin Durant injury, knowing how injury-prone Kyrie Irving is. You've added another layer of combustibility to it by rolling with not only a first-time head coach, but someone who's apparently not even a head, a real head coach, according to Kyrie. That's that's mostly a joke there. And now I'm just, what's going to happen in the offseason? Joe Harris is a free agent. Will they re-sign him? If they re-sign him, will they use their mid-level? Is there a trade to be made? Durant said Karis LeVert can be their third star, but are they still going to like go after someone else? And, and how many games does Durant play next year? How many games does... Kyrie Irving play? What does Durant look like post Achilles injury? So many questions with this team, not the least of which is just at the top with Kyrie Irving. Just are there going to be too many distractions, whether he means to create them or not? Like the media can say, he can take something relatively innocuous that he says, run with it, turn it into something. It's not. It feels like that might often happen in Brooklyn. And I'm also curious to see is like this going to be a leaky faucet situation where if things aren't great off the bat, are guys in the locker room going to be talking like we saw at the Clippers with the Clippers earlier this year and then after the season, even really just at any point with the Clippers? Uh, or will it just be sort of self-sabotage where they're making these open comments? The Nets, the level of combustibility there is absolutely tantalizing, polarizing. I won't be able to look away as we lead into next year. But enough of this. Let's get into some Detroit Pistons talk, trades, free agency, draft. Christian Wood, the development of Lou Kennard, Bruce Brown, all of it. Blake Griffin, Derek Rose, what's going on with this team with Lazarus Jackson of the Detroit Bad Boys and also the host of the Everybody vs. Pistons podcast. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. 
Laz, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. It's been way too long. I didn't anticipate it being this long, but apparently, you know, we're at a point where we're going to have like an NBA season play out every 1.5 years at this point, I guess. Um, hopefully it changes soon, but but how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great, Dan. Uh, my team hasn't played for quite some time, so I've just been kind of like in the wilderness wandering. Uh, team. <laughs> The uh, the individual group bubbles for the teams who didn't make the uh, the big bubble, the national NBA bubble in Florida, have started a couple weeks, and so that's been uh, just like a steady, like slight drip of uh, of content that's helped out. But yeah, man, like th- things have been uh, things have been kind of dry out here in Pistons land. What How are is, you doing? Oh, I'm no complaints over here. I am. Uh, I have not run into the same problem as you since I'm not covering one specific team. But I'm I am curious though. Like what happens during this time? Are you, do you end up like, because I'm sure there's a ton of overthinking here, but do you end up kind of talking yourself more into like the piston situation or are you like lower on them than you might normally be just because you've had so much time to think, rethink, and then overthink your rethink about this team? I think the, the overthinking, rethinking, unthinking, rethinking <laughs> happened a lot around the draft. Um, but as far as like the direction and orientation and personnel of this team, I feel like that's pretty, that's pretty standard, right? Like we, it's tougher to say what uh, the team, it's easy to say what the team needs. It's tougher to say exactly how they will address those needs until, you know, this season actually ends for everybody. Right. And that, and that hasn't happened yet. And so you can go out, you can identify targets and everything, but the the targets are going to stay the same in, you know, June or September. So, yeah. And I mean, look, the, the draft targets, I feel like could change on a whim with them being at, at number seven. Before I kind of get to the draft, though, this was the, as I'm like doing these primers, I try and, especially because it's been so long since I like was watching the Pistons and look, just fully to confess, like, you know, when you're getting into the heat of the playoff race, like, you know what, the Pistons are not. No, no, I, I wouldn't have watched us either. Yeah, so it's like I had to go back and like kind of like remind myself of stuff. Like I know I feel like I'm very versed in Christian Wood because I've given a lot of thought about free agency, but I'm going back and I'm I'm looking at like their cap sheet, like their roster, like what these players have done, the contract situations, both both long term and and like immediately. And I can't, I don't have a feel like for their future. And so my question to you to start is like it's it's like you know ten piece layered is. Are they rebuilding? Because I feel like nationally the perception was, oh, they traded Andre Drummond, so they must be. But like at the time, I was kind of like, I feel like this might say just more that they don't want to pay Andre Drummond because you still have like Derrick Rose, and I know that he could be moved easily, but Blake Griffin cannot be moved easily. And if he's healthy and you decide to keep him and you decide to keep Luke Kennard and, you know, say Koo like makes a, a mini jump and like you still have Bruce Brown and you sign someone in free agency and Christian Woods back and you still have Tony Snell, like you could probably pretty easily talk yourself with relative health for the Pistons into contending for one of those lower rung playoff seeds in the Eastern conference. And so I'm, my question to you is just, are they rebuilding? Like, what are they doing? Uh, the, the Detroit Pistons are in fact rebuilding. Okay. Don't, they don't want to tell you that because they would like to sell season tickets. Um, and they would like not to tell you that. Uh, because I think the the association of tanking in a lot of fans' minds is like the full 76ers style rebuild teardown where you win you know 13 games a year mm-hmm. and everyone's miserable all the time. But they they are rebuilding. When Troy Weaver, the uh, new general manager of the Detroit Pistons, was hired, 
the the word he used was restoration. So that is what we are calling it. It is not a rebuilding. We are not tanking. It is a restoration of the team. But uh, a restoration by any other name is uh, 30 wins. So it, it is, it's <laughs> going to be what it is. I, but I do think this team does not, you know, want to win, you know, fewer than like 20 games, right? I think that um, they would like to establish good habits among some of their younger players. And good habits are easier to build when you like win occasionally. When you go, you know, uh, you know, only two weeks instead of a month uh, mm-hmm. between wins. Um, I do think that they want to show veteran players that if you come to Detroit, like we will value you properly and we will use you to the uh, extent of your abilities, and uh, like we we have a home for you. And so I do think that like despite the fact that you know Derrick Rose hasn't been offloaded and they haven't shipped Blake Griffin out of town that uh, those guys are going to be there to help instruct and help them uh, and help them compete in a night in and night out basis. But I don't think those guys are going to play, you know, 82 games. Uh, if we have, if we even have 82 games, right. Yeah, I don't think those was... guys are going to play 82 games uh, this season. Right. Look, um, I mean, those are guys that even if you gave them the option of playing 82 games, they're probably not playing 82 games. <laughs> right. And, uh, and uh, you know, a lot of other stuff feeds into that, right? Like, the Pistons do have a lot of cap space, but I don't think, uh, like, there's been a persistent, like, undercurrent. There's always been a rumor that, like, Fred Van Fleet is a guy that the Pistons have targeted. I think that was more true earlier this season when they were trying to compete for one of those lower-tier playoff spots. I don't think that's as true now. I think now they're going to look towards the draft or uh, the lower ends of free agency for a, for a point guard to kind of handle that situation. Um, I do think they would like to bring Christian Wood back, but I we're and we're going to talk about Christian Wood in a minute anyway. So uh, let me not spoil that. Uh, but yeah, this team this team is definitely rebuilding. I think they would like to try and pull off a lot of what the Charlotte Hornets did uh, this okay. past season, where they were very clearly rebuilding, but they were playing their young guys a lot, um, still managing to compete on most nights. You know, Devontae Graham was the most improved player candidate. Um, I think they would love to see that kind of a jump from one of their young guys. And if my memory serves, the Hornets won like 28, 29 games and were on pace to you know, win in like the 34, 35 range. Um, and because of the flattened lottery odds, right, like they were still able to accomplish that and get the number three overall pick. So I think that that's kind of what the plan is for Detroit. You know, compete night in, night out, win, you know, between 30 and 35 games um, uh, and, you know, let the lottery odds that are a little bit flatter kind of go as they do. Yeah. Uh, Charlotte was on pace to win like 29, 30 games. And I think though, what you touched on a key point is just because of the, I don't know that the the lottery format has completely dissuaded tanking, but like we've seen where teams can jump up um, particularly, I mean like the Knicks have gotten screwed in, in both of the past two lotteries basically. And then like just last year looking at what happened when the Lakers jumped to number four and then that kind of determined like the Anthony Davis trade basically it doesn't like it's still it can pay to tank, but like so much like it was never really bankable. And now it's just even less so because of the flattened odds at the top. And then just like, you know, those six, seven, eight, nine teams, like just having substantially higher odds than they did to begin with. What I find sort of interesting is so like if they are rebuilding, I would think I know you mentioned that Derek Rose would contribute if he's still there. I would almost wouldn't the inkling be like, wouldn't you be kind of surprised if he started the season in Detroit or at least like finished it by the time the trade deadline is, which might be in the spring at this point, whenever the heck like the schedule ends up being. Uh, so that would be one. And then just the follow-up is like, 
do you see any scenario in which Blake Griffin is not on this team um, to finish next year? Because if you're rebuilding, he's not a guy to have. But when you just look at what he's owed on his contract, like prime break, when Blake Griffin is healthy, like he's all NBA caliber. We saw it um, the season before this one. But two years, $75.8 million for someone who's having like these knee problems, you probably do need to include a sweetener or take back like really crappy money. And I don't know, like if you're rebuilding, like you definitely shouldn't be including anything to grease the wheels of a trade. And then I don't, the other thing that's kind of difficult is I don't look at a team that says and say like, oh, they're like, if Blake Griffin's healthy, like he would make them so good. And so even if they're sending back like a minimal asset or no asset or just like a, a like a contract swap, basically, I don't necessarily see the fit anywhere. Yeah, I think the second part you bring up that like nobody is a Blake Griffin away from winning a title. I think that is the thing that keeps uh, Blake in Detroit in the long term. Um, I don't think that there is a there's not a big need to trade Blake Griffin, right? Like by himself, he is an all NBA player, but I still don't think I think he's more in like the Bradley Beal territory where he's not going to make you good enough to make the playoffs on his own. That's a good Um, I like that. And and he's also like not going to play as often as Bradley Beal, right? Like even under the best of circumstances, you want Blake to uh, be properly load managed. And so like I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not worried that uh, Blake's going to play and we're going to win 40 games by accident. That that's not a concern. Um, so I think both Blake and Derek start the year in Detroit. I think only Blake finishes the year in Detroit. Um, we'll see what the Pistons end up doing in free agency in the draft, but. Um, Derek Rose as an expiring deal for like a little bit less than the mid-level, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, that's exactly the type of thing you uh, you flip at the deadline for um, some second round picks uh, in, in order to, you know, further the restoration that Troy Weaver talked about. And Derek Rose has been a model citizen in Detroit, right? There were. You could tell that he was out you, and he was he was very effective when he was on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, the team took great pains to keep him healthy at the start of the season, um, limiting his minutes uh, like very extremely, not playing him back to backs, things like that. I'm um, bringing him off the bench. I do think that uh, if he were to start the year in Detroit, I think he would be the starter. I think it'd be too difficult to to keep him out of the starting lineup. And he, and he was starting uh, by the end of the season anyway. Um and yeah, I, I think that uh, the it really just depends on like the what who is a Derrick Rose away from from winning a title because it's much easier to fit Derrick Rose into a lot of different scenarios than it is to fit Blake Griffin, right? From a money perspective and from like a play style and 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 uh, and uh, you know bench scoring situation. Right, and I mean, like you mentioned, the money is just so cheap, and I almost wonder if they can't get like a lower end first for him, just because the point guard free agent market is like brutal. There's, I mean, after Fred Van Fleet, you're like you're talking about uh, Dragic is good. You have Jeff Teague and Jordan Clarkson. Is he even a point guard? Like, how excited do those names get you? And I mean, even the more intriguing, like Chris Dunn and DeAnthony Melton, restricted free agent names. Like those guys are defense first for someone if you're looking for scoring and a little bit passing. And the thing that I found fascinating too is. Um, even though Rose played under 1,300 minutes last season, he was still seventh, I believe. No, yes, yeah, seventh in corner three-pointers assisted on. And so, like, I feel like he could bring value to a team that maybe swings and misses on a point guard in free agency or more likely, you know, they can't address that in free agency. And so, 
Um, and it, like, if they need another shot creator, like, what, what if Dallas is just all 2021 everything with their cap space and they don't want to make any major moves? Like, it feels like Derrick Rose would be an interesting name there. Um, he was mentioned with the Lakers a, a bunch of times leading into the trade deadline. Um, you would know better than I whether they would, like, consider strongly moving him before the season started, but I would almost expect, like, a, a frothier trade market for him this summer than we saw leading into this past trade deadline. Yeah, I think once the season gets started and we see how teams kind of play out wherever they're at, especially since like we don't know a lot of the structure of what next season is going to look like. Um, it'll be it'll be once we like actually start playing basketball for the 21-22 season, I think it'll be uh, I think you'll see a frothier trade market. I think you'll see like teams figure out like what the what their like backup point guard needs are, like who uh, is actually closer to like that that playoff high tier caliber uh, like if you like if you look at the playoff teams like right now like nobody really needs a, a, a backup point guard right like the nuggets are set the lakers we we mentioned like derrick rose being linked to the lakers and like that is one uh intriguing possibility uh the clippers it remains to be seen like what happens with uh with that entire team right after after their ignominious uh playoff exit mm-hmm. um the the celtics don't really need another like uh point guard sized initiator um and so and so yeah yeah i'm not i'm not i'm not overly concerned with like where derrick rose uh like ends up but i do think he'll be traded before the end of the uh 2021-22 season i guess if it leads into the season you just hope that he remains obviously plays well enough but normally when he's been healthy he's played well so it's yes can he remain healthy enough to keep that trade value up so two names that i'm going to be fascinated by since we like we're saying that the pistons are rebuilding i'll start with christian wood because he's a free agent he i think freshly turned was 25 so he's still like uh, he's still young. And so it's not like a matter of, oh, we can't have this guy for the next four years because he runs counter to our timeline. And I don't really think so that teams give that much credence as much as fans or, you know, want to be analysts like myself do. I'm just, I really like Christian Wood and just the season he turned in, like the things he can do on offense, it feels like he can score 20 something points entirely within the flow of the offense. And yet like he has a little bit of a, like more more nuance to his game where it's like yeah he's okay like putting putting the ball down and like he can even make some moves in traffic going going baseline and so I really like him and I think he could end up being a better defender than people have talked about like he covers a lot of ground it seems like in the half court where maybe it's not maybe it's like frenetic ground I would call or chaotic ground (laughs) where does it mean anything those are good words um so maybe I'm off on that that's just me like watching him but a lot of people have been like, well, you know, if they can get him for like a little bit more than the, they have cap space, so it doesn't matter. Like his early bird rights are, are whatever. Like, so they can basically pay him whatever he's going to get. But I actually think that even though there are so scant few teams with cap space, I actually feel like he's going to get noticeably more than the mid-level, which is going to be like somewhere between 9.2 and 9.7, I would guess, depending on where the cap ends up. And so if you're the Pistons, like, I mean, one, how high are you specifically on Christian Wood, and then two, like, what is the number where you look at it and go, you know what, like, you have fun in like Charlotte, or you know what, you go, you go join that um, shit show in New York or something. Right. So I wrote a piece uh, titled something like the Pistons don't have to retain Christian Wood uh, at all costs, and fans like reacted like I like cut off their heads, and so like <laughs> I think I think Pistons fans are like really truly excited about Chris bringing Christian Wood back. I think uh, the team is also like fairly excited about Christian Wood coming back, but uh, there is a line, right? Um, I do think it's higher than the mid-level that that nine uh, million figure 
you mentioned, I would say like it's somewhere in like the nine to 12, 13 million dollar range. Uh, when we, we got the report that Montrezl Harrell was going to make like $12 million, that he was seeking like a $12 million a year free agency deal. And that was like, yes, absolutely. If, if my, if the sixth man of the year is only getting 12 million, like bring Christian Wood back for mm-hmm. sure. But if, you know, the Knicks come out day one and they're like, hey, Christian Wood, here's $80 million over four years. It's like, yep, okay, nope, have fun Bye. with that. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, I, I, we, like, we can't match that. Um, Christian Wood's re- a really good player. It's, it's interesting to me that, uh, you know, Pistons fans are, you know, classically obsessed with, with defense and, and rebounding. And yet they let Christian Wood like so readily into their hearts, a guy who does not really defend either position fairly well. And, and well, he does rebound the crap out of the ball. I'll give him that. Um, but it, it, it's really tricky to construct the, to envision like how the Pistons are going to be constructed, like with Blake Griffin and Christian Wood, right? Like those are two not super great defenders. Um, if you play those two guys together, um, you could ask Blake to guard centers, but then that's that's putting Blake in a lot of like one five actions that I I wouldn't want to do. Yeah. Um, and that's also like asking Christian to like drop properly and then learn to use uh, his length a little bit better. Um, Christian was much better as like a weak side help defender, a guy who um, could like read and react to to the drive. The guy who like if you if you manage to slow down the perimeter defenders, like as Bruce Brown like often managed to do, could come by and like give you a lot of like weak side help, and a guy who got, got a lot of his blocks that way. But uh, as like a point of attack defender, as a guy who's like operating as the fulcrum and like a drop screen, a drop a drop scheme, a la like Brooke Lopez, like, he he was not very good. Just point blank and so like you know he's a he has very clearly defined uh strengths and weaknesses and his strengths are very very valuable and his weaknesses you know aren't really that bad for a team that's not gonna win a whole bunch of games and so like yeah i think i would be interested in bringing christian wood back at like you know three years 40 million right like that that sounds perfect sure um but again like if you know the knicks or charlotte or somebody else like wants to may pay him like you know 18 19 20 million dollars a year you like say thank you and then you point to other free agents like hey like look what we did for Christian Wood we can do that for for you right like come on down Harry Giles like we got to look at you paid man what would it, if it's like 4 and 60 cuz it's almost easier to go higher on the dollars if it's 3 years like if you can go shorter term and it's higher, but like I feel like four and sixty is where it might start to get like uncomfortable for me at least, where I look at it and go for the team because I'm pro players getting as much as they can. I love that you know I've mentioned this a bunch in the podcast. Like Trevor Ariza's basically gone wherever he's gotten the most money and then figured out how to get to another team like later on <laughs> in the season. I, I respect that. Like I want players to get paid. So, but from a team perspective, like I feel like four sixty is where it starts to get like oh, like what do we do here? Yeah, 460 is where you start being like, well, will you take a team option on the last year? Or, well... Like partial guarantee or something. Right, it's like, well, will you take it decreasing? So you make like 20 million this year and like 12 million in the final year. That's when you start getting like, let's do some uh, accounting tricks type of stuff. But uh, but yeah, that's not that's not unreasonable from a, from a contract perspective. What's that? That's fifteen annual About a year. Value? Yeah, yeah, that's that's not bad. My get, I have no feel for the market. I think because if I'm not a big like Trez guy, uh, I feel like you can approximate his value rather cheaply. 
So if he got like $12 million a year, I don't know if that would be a barometer for Christian Wood, but I, I guess it would certainly be encouraging overall. But this, this summer is just so twisted because of the lack of cap space and then also because like how many teams are going to be like a little bit twitchy when it comes to spending money at all because of the gate revenue and overall revenue they lost this season. And then they're going to lose something next season. Like it's either going to be shortened or they're just not going to have fans in the stadiums for, I would hazard, you know, at least a portion of it, if not all of it. And so I'm wondering how much that ends up factoring in because my gut would say like, even in this limited market, I think would probably gets like 14 plus, but then again, I'm like, I have zero idea what to expect in free agency at this point. Yeah. I think if there were, if there, if this was a better like free agent class overall, right. If there were, um, if there were a lot of bigs who were better than Christian Wood and he was a lot of people's like C or D plan and that they felt like, okay, like we have to like break the glass on Christian Wood or else like we're going to, we're going to end up with nothing. Mm. I think it'd be, I think it'd be more in that arena, but with the way free agency currently stands now, right? Like he's competing with like, you know, it's like him and like Jeremy Grant and like, uh, and like Bobby Portis and like some other guys out there. So it's like, he's the he's the number one option for teams but i think teams are also aware that he's not you know your classic uh free agent overpay right yeah i think i think that's a great point the other player that interests me for this team now and, and it's he's younger so luke Kennard, uh mm-hmm. 24 and was having a hell of a season um before his knee tendonitis really became an issue Six, basically 16 points four assists um, shot almost 38, uh, shot over 37%, excuse me, on pull-up three-pointers and was at 39.9% from three-point range overall. Shooters tend to be valuable anyway, and he's a career 40% three-point shooter. But the fact that he kind of turned into like this, um, I don't want to say secondary, but like, you know, tertiary or third-dairy, if we want to put it that way, like playmaker, and could hit more of those complicated jump shots, it feels like it could really up his value. But then at the same time, it's like, well, he's coming off a season in which he played 28 games and then you know the other person on my shoulders like well that might be a nice opportunity to extend him like maybe he wants to bag the the long-term security more than ride it into 2021 restricted free agency where there will be or should be more cap space available but you also don't know where the salary cap lands and so where do you ultimately land on him is one is he still a part of do you think their long-term future and two would you expect them to aggressively pursue an extension with him if he is or is that something they just let ride out until 2021 at this point I don't think I don't think the team or him he and his representation are extremely interested in an extension at this time. Um, I don't. There were there were a lot of like smoke and rumors that the that he could have returned earlier from the knee tendonitis, but didn't for whatever reason. Um, I mentioned this in uh, almost like every podcast I do about about the Pistons, but there was like a very infamous uh, blow up in Sacramento with uh, Luke Kennard and the coaching staff. Uh, his sec, yeah, his second year. Um, I think that you know he started the year on the bench. Like there was a, he was doing a lot of his damage against bench lineups, and the the bench lineup of Luke Kennard and Derrick Rose was like absolutely shredding teams earlier in the year, mm-hmm. and so that was fun to see. But, you know, as a guy who would like to get paid, you know, I'm sure he would love to start for right. a team, you know, and I'm sure he would love to start ahead of Bruce Brown. Right. Just just to be frank. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and with a brand new GM and who, you know, has no prior allegiance to Luke Kennard, um, and with a uh, 
brand new front office who like you know hasn't really taken a deep scout on him i do think that they are using the this is like this is one of the real benefits of the organized team activities of the like the mini camps is to like for the new front office to like see like okay like what do we have in mm-hmm. a guy like luke Kennard before the draft before free agency um and you know luke was in trade rumors uh yep. you know way back in in february <laughs> when uh when the season was still going on and so i don't think that um I don't think that the team is uh, I think the team looks at Luke as like a value proposition, right? Like if uh, if the market is turns out to be like super duper bearish or uh, super, yeah, super duper bearish and, you know, no one's offering anyone anything. You can go to Luke and say like, hey, like here's four for 60 and the same kind of Christian Wood range mm-hmm. like and he has to actually legitimately consider it like that. I think that's a win for the team. Um but, you know, conversely, you know, I'm sure Aaron Mintz is like saying like, hey, like Buddy Heald makes like twenty three million dollars <laughs> a year. Right. Like Luke's that good is like uh, kind of has a point. And so and so, yeah, I I really struggle with with what to do uh, with Luke Kennard. Uh, my my personal thing has just been like if you if you really don't want to extend him and you really don't think he's conducive to a rebuild. Um, you know, pull off the trade with Phoenix that you talked about at the deadline. Uh, now that we know exactly where Phoenix is picking in the lottery, you can figure out like, is that protection worth it or not? Um, I, that that deal I think got bogged down because of the pick protections. Yeah. And so now that uh, Phoenix is picking tenth, you can do like the tenth pick, um, one of the excess Phoenix guards for for Lucanard, like yes or no, right? And and if that's the if you if that works. Like you move forward with a younger a younger player out of this year's draft, and if it doesn't work, you know you Luke Kennard is still a really good player that you're happy to you're happy to have on your team, happy to have uh, his restricted free agency rights for. So, do you, where it is. do you do if you're the Pistons? And I, I think I would do it. Speaking on behalf of the Suns, uh, their fans might be outraged by this, but I I think I would do something like I, I would I would do number ten and something for. Luke Kennard, I still think it's not going to be a Bridges or a Johnson, but like a, yeah, a Ty yeah, Jerome, like taking that flyer, unless, you know, um, unless you think that you're going to really go all in on a Chris Paul trade or something. And I wouldn't say that you should give up that same value for Paul just because of the money he makes, but unless you're going to take a bigger swing, I would think like Luke Kennard is like a, a solid double for them if he's healthy. And then you can focus on, um, because he's so cheap and if that doesn't really you know cost you too much, like then you focus on in free agency or via other trade avenues of like just beefing up that that four spot in the rotation yeah if i yeah if i was detroit and you offered me you know javon carter and 10 for luke Kennard, like i i would very much seriously consider that yeah absolutely uh that might be a deal breaker for me if i'm phoenix javon carter is like (laughs) his alarm goes off and he's already picking up people on defense i feel like javon carter is a classic detroit piston which is kind of why kind of why i want him um so my next question here is about the rookie. So this is like kind of deviating. We know that he's supposed to be a part of their future. And it, it's been so long since I really like, you know, was watching Sekou Dumboya. And so I went back and watched some stuff and his, I, I want to know what your impressions are of him. The one thing that I was just going to note like beforehand is he seems like w- way more confident on offense than I feel like I remember watching in real time, but that I ever would have expected and so like he just took some shots where he like looked okay when he was moving off the dribble but he just sort of took some shots and maybe his, his takeoff points were just weird and seemed too early but like he just it looked like he felt so sure of himself and I was torn between like impressed and then almost concerned <laughs> with his shot selection if that makes any sense 
No, that makes total sense. Uh, Seku had a very uneven year, right? I, there was a, I think his, the first, he spent the first part of the year in Grand Rapids in the G League, um, just like playing basketball. Uh, I think that, and I think that was really helpful for him. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, the coaching staff led by Donnie Tyndall, who is no longer uh, a part of that Grand Rapids Drive staff, I think that was a really beneficial uh, coaching staff for him. They really looked to put him in advantage situations. I think that was great for him personally. Uh, then he he joined the the Pistons. Um, you know, Blake Griffin after Blake Griffin's injury, he was kind of thrown into the rotation, and for the first twelve games. He played really well. Uh, he was he was making his open shots. He was a really intelligent off-ball cutter, which is like an element of wing play the Pistons haven't had in a very long time. And so it was extremely noticeable. It was like, oh, hey, like this dude cuts baseline. Like he got LeBron on like a baseline cut. And that made you like, oh, okay. That's really like, – that pops. But it was like um, – I know he played better defense this year, but it was also regular season LeBron. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and it's also like it's like Wednesday night the Pistons are in town, LeBron. Oh, that too. So, yeah. Yeah, it's like I don't, I don't think he was a, I don't think he was fully engaged, but it was still it was still noticeable that a rookie could get LeBron like that. Um, you know, he had the he had his highlight play of the year like the big dunk over Tristan Thompson that yes. got like they got like literally like the jump talking about it, which at the point was like, "Oh, okay, like that that's really cool." Um, and then he just kind of fell off a cliff, right? Uh, lost a lot of confidence. Um, like the, the coaching, like Dwayne Casey talked openly about how uh, they like wanted to send him back down to the G League to get his confidence back in a shot. Um, looked very aimless on on offense at times. To be fair, the the offense, the motion offense, doesn't really uh, didn't really give him a lot of opportunity to like handle with the ball in his hands or do anything but like stand in the corner or attack in transition and so like i think both sides kind of uh, deserve some blame for that he didn't make a supreme effort to get himself engaged in the offense either and you know as 9 18 19 year old rookies tend to be he was super bad on defense <laughs> just like just like really not good on defense multiple times like even in the g league level I'm just like looking at the screen. It's like he doesn't know where he is. Like he literally just like does not know where he is <laughs> defensively. That's pretty bad. And so I think that there is, and like I say, even saying that, like I hold a ton of optimism around Seku Duboya uh, for this team, just because of the simple fact that like he's 19, right? right? Like he and he's 19, and he didn't completely embarrass himself at the NBA level uh, during his rookie year. Right. Like, OK, sure. He's not Jason Tatum. And he's like, you know, starting an Eastern Conference finals game at 19. Like, sure. OK, whatever. But um, but he looks to be good. He lo- there's definite there's definitely like a lot of things there. Um, the comparison a lot of you see a lot of uh, analysts make is to Pascal Siakam. And like you look at Pascal Siakam didn't even get to the league, I think, until uh, like 22. Right. Mm-hmm. And it his development curve is just like the stuff of legends to the point where like, I think he, he was getting like, you know, he was making giant leaps every off season. I think it's unfair to kind of place that type of expectation on a Seku. I don't think he's going to, I don't think he's going to get like, you know, 80% better every off season for right. the next five years. But I do think that, you know, if he's starting from a point that's a little bit higher than Siakam and has a little bit more linear development curve, I do think there's a possibility he ends up kind of like in that range where he's like a, a very clear all, all-star, like a really great uh, secondary option, a guy who's just like an absolute terror in transition, 
can can make his own shot in the half court not really create for others but that's okay because you're you're happy with the quality of looks he creates and and, and gets to a place where he's like a really effective defender um Dwayne Casey has talked about how good he's looked physically in training camp so like that's a big bonus um he did look like very winded at times last season and that was a uh that was a criticism of him during the pre-draft process was that he wasn't always like fully engaged and uh and everything and so like he's addressed that i think that's a little bit good i think he really needed to see like what it took to compete for 82 games uh at the at an nba level in order to like understand like where he needed to be and now he's on the process of getting there so i i hold a lot of optimism for seku nuboya with the like you know expectation that he's not going to light the world on fire next year or anything um one of the things that I, I like about him is I feel like he should pretty easily be able to, if he improves like overall defensively, play at the four without it feeling like they're going like downsizing. I know six eight isn't really like a downsizing for a four lineup, but he was a little bit better at rebounding than I thought he was going to be. I am curious though, like how when you flip to the other side of the floor, like how hopeful are you that he'll develop like more of a feel for the game from the from the perimeter because I feel like looking at like when he was driving to the basket or even getting through traffic, like I feel like that's going to be okay. I'm just wondering like what he's going to look like if he's getting to his spots in like the, the mid range or like the super short mid range, like in floater range, or if you think he's ever going to be like, have you seen the stroke or um, just anything that would make you think that he can be like a league average shooter from beyond the arc one day. I think that uh, once he gets the lower half of his body, like a little bit stronger, I think that will help his shot. Uh, immensely he has a little uh like a double like wrist flick at the top of his shot that i think uh if his lower half like isn't aligned properly and not strong enough can get can cause like real problems uh going like left or right instead of like long or short and so i think getting that ironed out will, will be huge for a shot um and i think like as he develops physically you also get like less concerned about uh the defensive end as well right like if he's you know, as he learns to play NBA defense and he obviously like has the the frame to defend, you know, both forward positions and like, you know, with the way the league is trending, like you can throw him at the five or you can throw him on fives for stretches. Maybe he doesn't well, play you know your audience. I am yeah. an endless uh, lobbyist for, for small ball fives. <laughs> yeah. So you, you can you can throw him on fives. So he's not playing five, but like. You know, like in the similar way to the way the Celtics like threw Jalen Brown on Bam Adebayo in the Eastern Conference Finals, you hope to be able to do that with Seku like in time, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, there's there's definitely uh, there's definitely I definitely uh, envision a world and like where he works out on on both ends. Um, sticking with just some players on the roster, and I, there's so many different directions I could take this, but who intrigues you more long term for this team? Is it Bruce Brown, who kind of just seems like he has a special place in Pistons hearts, or is it, is it Shfi, where it's like, oh, that guy can shoot, and I feel like he should be worse defensively, but he's not, and so they're both on you know cheapo deals, non-guaranteed, that'll be guaranteed for sure, $1.7 million next season, and so I'm wondering if one of them is more tantalizing to you if you're the Pistons long-term than the other. It's it's you. This is a bad question for me because I'm a big fan of Bruce Brown. I'm driving the Bruce Brown bandwagon, and so uh, yeah, for me it's it's Bruce just because of like the strides he made as a passer this year were so unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, coming out of school, 
he was viewed as like a, a combo guard, like really athletic. Um, and then it came to his rookie year and it turned out his calling card was like really great on ball defense, right. Or like really great, really great defensively to the point where he started like 50 games because the team uh, felt like they needed his defense, you know, that badly. And then we get to a second year and a bunch of injuries happen and the team likes to keep, you know, Derek Rose coming off the bench playing you know, 25 ish minutes a night. And so all of a sudden Bruce Brown is your starting point guard. <laughs> And that sounds terrible, but he was actually like not bad at it, right? Like he, he, it was very simple, right? Like very, uh, it was like not like doing anything crazy, but you know, using his explosive first step to attack defenses, especially in drop coverage, um, using a lot of jump passes to fool defenses and get the ball to shooters and big men. And as the season went on, he did a much better job of, like getting into the chest of big men and then uh, dropping off passes to uh, to his bigs. So you saw a lot of passes get to Christian Wood that way. You saw he'd uh, he'd take like two dribbles, kind of uh, you know look the big in the eyes, and then like pa- bounce pass it to like a cutting Seku, right? And so and he even like busted out a floater, like a really nice floater, which is something you wouldn't expect from like the six five like athletic guy. But yeah, he has good touch on the floater, so it is what it is. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoy the like smorgasbord of like what Bruce Brown uh, offers. I don't know if he's ever like good enough to be your starting point guard or good enough to be like your starting shooting guard, unless he's a much better shooter from three. So this is this is like the Marcus Smart path, right? Where like if you go from like twenty nine percent from three to like thirty six percent from three with the occasional like I make five threes and a half and like your coach tears your hair out and, like that's a supremely and like you make pick and roll reads and you have great on ball defense and you like make plays happen like that's a really valuable proposition um but if his shooting uh, which was and he shot better from three this year but a lot of it was uh limited to the corners he was a, he shot most of his threes from the corners and he shot a better percentage from the corners than on the wing um and so and it was all catch and shoot threes, right? Yep. No, nothing off the dribble. And so if you ever get him to a point where he's comfortable taking off the dribble wing threes and hitting them at even like a 34% clip, like that, that like opens up an entire like world of possibilities for Bruce Brown. Svi and like Svi on the other hand, there is a like much more like limited uh, set of possibilities, right? Like Svi is like uh, you He's a really great shooter who can pass a little bit if you close out on him too hard. And that's kind of who he is. Um, but as we've seen, like that's that's an extremely valuable role player, right? <laughs> Especially if that guy is not terrible on defense, which uh, Svi managed to elevate his defense to that level this season, which was like the really pleasant surprise, right? Like there were times when um, Svi would you, – you would there were times when Svi was preferable to the coaching staff to Luke just because they offered a lot of the same things, but Svi was just a much, much better defender. And so, yeah, like, you know, you, you hope that Svi turns out to be Duncan Robinson, which I feel, this is, this is a little unfair, because I feel like every white dude who can shoot uh, is going to get compared to Duncan Robinson for, like, the next three years. But, like, in, the, in this case, it's actually kind of apt. Uh, I mean, if we want to be kind of, we could call him, like, Wayne Ellington with a little bit of defense, like, if that's a little bit better of a one. He's a little bit taller than Ellington. Or, no, yeah, he is, no, yeah, but Ellington was 6'4", I think, and he's, or 6'3", maybe he's 6'7". Yeah. I did not realize he was that big. 
he's he's got a negative wingspan. He's a T Rex, so that that doesn't help him defensively. I think it helps the shot a lot, though. I I struggled with this one. When I was trying to think about it myself, and the when I was looking at the numbers, like you see, Bruce Brown's passing numbers stood out to me, and I just he turned the ball over so often early on in the the pick and roll. Um, and was the 20% on turnovers in the pick and roll possessions for the season. And then yet he was like drawing fouls out of the pick and roll more than I realized when I was looking at the numbers. And so I think I would default to him, but you made me look this up while you were talking. I didn't realize he, he shot like 22% on above the break threes and he was at 35.6% on catch and shoot threes overall. So it was like encouraging, but not encouraging if that's like so heavy on the corners. I don't know that there were enough, like any evidence that he would hit any off the dribble threes like Marcus Smart would, because even when Smart was shooting like, you know, negative percentage from beyond the arc, he was still taking those off the dribble threes. And you just haven't seen that from Bruce Brown yet. But I I think because he's probably, he has more proven commodities than Shvi. I think, I, I think I would side with you just because with the, with the ladder, you know that he can shoot, but then it's like everything else is kind of up in question. And then with Bruce Brown, it's like, well, you know that he could defend and that he can check certain number one options for long periods of time. And then if he's also going to be, you know, a pretty good passer and, and he can, you know, defenses are still going to give him like the, I don't even know what treatment do we call it, like the Rondo treatment at this point where they just like, even if he's hitting his threes, they're not going to care, yeah. uh, but that's still fine. And so I, th- I think I'd be, I'd be with you, but I, I don't know, especially now that I know that Shvi is six, seven, I'm almost like want to be leaning towards him. Yeah. Well, the other thing, okay, I'm gonna give you two uh, two other things uh, in Bruce Brown's favor. Uh, after Andre Drummond was traded, he was the team's best rebounder. Like I am, I am not kidding. He was averaging like eight rebounds a game or something insane. Um, and the you look at his turnover numbers. Uh, I think if I okay, I'm doing this off of the top of my head. I did not look this up. I think like a full like 20% of his turnovers for the year came in the first two weeks. He turned, he had, he, I don't know what was happening earlier in the year, but he was turning the ball over like crazy for the first couple of games. And then he, he settled down. And so I'm not, I'm less concerned about like if he's your, if he's one of your long-term like backcourt options, is he just a turnover machine? Like, no, I'm not, I'm not as worried about that. The pull-up shooting, like you mentioned, where he's not even taking them, like that is a much bigger concern of mine. Yeah. You sold me. I'm sold. Uh, I mean, <laughs> why choose might be my, especially if, if you end yeah, up no, like, moving Canard, yeah, why choose? Yeah, we have $30 million in gap space. Bring both those guys back. Uh, to that point, so I don't really know where the cap is going to end up, but I have the Pistons at if Tony Snell picks up his player option and they... Which you will. Yeah, I mean, I would assume he would. Uh, unless there's like a... I, I don't know who's paying like Tony Snell like a three-year deal where he makes substantially more. So assuming he picks up his player option and they, I'm assuming they just renounce Thon... Um, they'll probably, I would think that they'll, obviously you'll have Brune, uh, Brown, Shvi. I'm assuming they'll just leave Thomas's money on the books. But like I have them at basically 30 million. Like it's like, right. It's like, I have them at like 29.6 or something. Are there any free agents aside from wood? And that's his cap holds included here, which is, that's just so convenient. $1.7 million cap hold, by the way, that's just great. Um, for them, um, are there any free agents or even trade targets where they can soak up bad money attached to assets that you've given thought about that you'd like to see them, um, go after with all this money that they have because I think they there's Atlanta and then if we're assuming that New York like doesn't guarantee any of the deals that they have like those are the only two teams that are slated to have more cap space than Detroit right now I believe Miami could get there but I think Jay Crowder and Dragic have played their way into some pretty lucrative one-year deals yeah no absolutely um, and I think you have you have the situation flipped a little bit unfortunately 
I think the team will bring back Thon and and not bring back Kyrie Thomas. I think that's how that they're makes play. zero sense to me. Is that Dwayne Casey I, driven? I'm so yeah, confused right now. I agree with you. That doesn't make much sense to me. But yes, that's Dwayne Casey driven. Dwayne Casey loves Thon's energy on a consistent basis, which is fair for and you know he plays hard, which is important for a young team. But that's like all he does. And so like we we were talking about this off air, but like. Like I was really looking forward to Justin Patton just like demolishing Thon in training camp. So like Troy Weaver could be like, no, I'm taking away your pacifier. Like you can't have this dude who like just plays hard. I'm sorry, Dwayne. But like now he's hurt. And so like Thon gets to go up against like Adam Woodbury for the entire training camp. And it's like, okay, sure. Like, of course he's going to make the team next year. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, I guess it helps that like, you know, a, uh, was his fourth I can't remember if his team option was declined like no he's supposed to be restricted so like I don't even know yeah. who's giving him like they shouldn't even be tendering him a qualifying offer who's giving him 4.9 million dollars is that his qualifying offer yeah I mean he was oh. picked high because the Bucks swung I think wasn't he number 10 I believe yeah, unless he, I'm mistaken yeah he's 10 but like yeah I didn't I didn't think his qualifying offer would be five million dollars. Yeah, that's way too I would hundred. I mean, I'm, <laughs> based on what you know, I said before we recording, I'm completely biased. But you get Justin Patton healthy, and you give him the minutes that you're going to give Thon. That's what should happen. Exactly. That that's my plan as well. Um, but to answer your your initial question about cap space, I do. There are like a lot of bad contracts. There are a surprising number of bad contracts out there, considering all the bad deals that were signed in 2016 are coming to an end. And so, like, that was my initial concern is, like, oh, crap, like, all these, like, sour 16s or whatever aren't going to be out there. We can't get any draft picks. I think Batum then, is, like, the, the lone wolf out there signed in 2016 yeah. that's still on the books. And then it's like, oh, hey, like, you know, Al Horford sucks now. It's like, all right, like, yes, let's do this. It's like, I'll take, I'll take Al Horford, but, like, you got to give me, like, a bunch of picks. Like, sure, I don't care. Like, you like, wouldn't sac- do it for just Thibel? Uh, I mean, like Thibel and some picks. Wow, that's like the thing I work. I'm like still. I mean, like if you include Thibel, the picks obviously get worse. But like, is like, and you also got to think about the roster, right? Like, can you ever play Thibel and Bruce Brown at the same time? I mean, do you care about how many bricks are laid? <laughs> it's like if you like to score points, <laughs> the answer is no. Um, but like, eh. I think my problem with that, one, I don't know. I honestly don't know what like Philly would give up to grease the wheels of an Al Horford trade. But if you're the Pistons, like I'm actually still pretty, I think he's a terrible fit in Philly, but like if he's healthy, Al Horford's still good. And if you have Al Horford and Blake Griffin and they both stay healthy, like that might be the way that you stumble into 35 wins. That's fair. But I feel like, I feel like at that point, if you, if you rehab Horford's value to like that point, it's like, maybe you could flip him again. It was like, or if you rehab Blake Griffin's value to that point, you can flip Blake because at that point, there will only be what, like another year and a half of Blake's deal. True. It's it's much easier to be like, oh, we'll pay Blake eighteen for eighteen months instead of for twenty four months. I don't, you know, that's that's GM math. Don't ask me to explain it. <laughs> um, you know, so Al Horford's one guy. Uh, Eric Gordon is another guy. Yes, I, have, I was going to ask have, you about him. I have no idea what Houston's going to look like in six months. Um, their owner is like going out of business or whatever. Um, they, they are extremely limited and, uh, basically like they built a Mike D'Antoni team and then fired Mike D'Antoni. So like, if you need a head coach, like, I don't know who would take that job. I don't know who would be a good fit for that job. Houston is just a really confusing situation to me. And so 
the problem there is that they don't have any picks, right? They already traded all their picks. Well, and they, so, they can sneakily, unless I'm reading this wrong, and I've tried to triple check it, they can move their 2022 first rounder. And so the the sort of like poo-poo platter of sweeteners I've thrown out there is Daniel House Jr. and that pick, there has to be some protection on it because there's a chance that Houston's just got awful by then. Like I could see a scenario where James Harden just wants out. Um, and so would you do that? Like those two plus Eric Gordon, like, is that a deal that you'd be willing to accept? I, 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 that's, I'm willing to look at my options, right? Like if that's the only way I can get another future first round pick, like sure. But like that, I'm not immediately it's, like taking that deal. It's an intriguing pick though, because I'm, I think I look at it as like, I viewed like the, that Lakers 2024 pick that New Orleans has that can be um, optionized to 2025. I see that as like a highly valuable asset just because LeBron will be like 80 at that point. He might've left in free agency or whatever, but like GMs like don't have that type of lifespan, but in yeah. like Detroit, like 2022 is close enough where if you're Troy Reaver, it's like, well, I just got here. I'm still going to be here. I'm going to be the one using that pick. So if he wanted to roll the dice, like that might be a situation where it's okay. And look, if the protections are like top three or top five or something, I think I would do it because it doesn't seem, as you mentioned a lot with um, Tillman Fertitta and then look, the James Harden stuff, he's going to be a free agent in two years too. Um, and then who knows how Russell Westbrook is going to age. The deal certainly is not aged well at all. Um, PJ Tucker is going to be a free agent after next year. Uh, Robert Covington will be a free agent in, in uh, well, I guess 2022. So that doesn't matter. But if, if they want to move him when he's an expiring contract, I think I make, if I'm a franchise, if I'm a front office that b- believes that even if I miss, I'm still going to be there in 2022, I'm rolling the dice if Houston's giving up its 2022 pick. Yeah, I would. And then you also add on the fact that you like immediately flip house for another like top 40 pick. It's like, okay, like now, like I can see that. Absolutely. Um, but uh, I'm thinking of, there's another guy I'm thinking of, and that's Harrison Barnes, right? Like I, again, I don't really know what Sacramento is doing. But I do know that they would like to like keep that team together in the form it currently is. But like Harrison Barnes is like not really a long term piece there. And sneakily, he doesn't make that much money. I think he only makes like twenty million, twenty one million. Yeah, he's first of all, he's the king of entering free agency at the right time. And so like he gets there in 2016, he's able to decline his player option and signs another four year deal where it's like, yeah, he's making slightly less money, I think, than he was slated to in his player option, but he got four guaranteed years. Um, I think it what was it, eighty? It's eighty five million. And it's on yeah. a if you're the Pistons though, you look at it and you're like, well, it's on a declining scale. So the final yeah. year is eighteen point four. No, that doesn't seem like a bad deal to eat at all. No, yeah, and uh, that enables them to re-sign uh, Boyan, right? Boyan Bogdanovich, not Bogdan. Bogdan. Yeah, damn, damn it, Bogdan. And I enables them to re-sign Bogdan Bogdanovich. Um, you know, I don't know what their new front off. Who did they, they hired somebody as their GM, right? Um, I think I don't know if it, I thought they were still looking. Um, unless okay. I'm mistaken, I'm going to be that. That'll be a really bad miss by me. It's a Joe Dumars. Yeah, we're supposed to be. Joe Dumars is leading the search for the new. He's like kind of, sorta leading the search. I think what was it? Monte McNair is now like. Oh no, he they did they hired Monte McNair as their okay. general manager. Okay, okay, there me. there we go. They okay. So uh, I don't know. So I don't know. So if I if I didn't know that they have a GM, like I definitely don't know what Monte McNair like wants to do with that team. Yeah, like and maybe so, he's like, not even that attached to Bogdanovich, and so it's like, like that you know getting money off the books to make sure you can keep him long-term isn't an issue. Right. And it's not even next season. Like they can do it under the tax pretty handedly. Like unless he costs something like absurd, but I think it's in future seasons where you're talking about Fox, like getting his max yes. extension kicking in. That's the issue. 
yeah, you got to pay De'Aaron Fox in two years, and then you got to pay Marvin Bagley the year after that somehow. Uh, I'm like wondering if they're even going to pick up Marvin Bagley's fourth year team option at this point, the way things are going yeah. out there. Yeah, I don't, that's a if uh, you know if you could get you know if you could get that guy as a as a second draft guy. You'd be like, hey, like, we'll, we'll, it's like, you guys don't really like Marvin Bagley anymore. Like, we'll take him in the Harrison Barnes deal. Like, no problem. You only have to attach, like, a future second now instead of, like, some future first. It's like, I'll, I'll take a look at Marvin Bagley. Uh, him and Christian Wood are basically the same player, right? Two Christian <laughs> Woods is better than one. Uh, yeah, Marvin Bagley, 11.3 million in his fourth year. Like, the rookie scales are getting, like, sneaky expensive for the, oh, for the players who are drafted higher. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a lot of money. But yeah, no, I'd, I'd still take a look at Bagley though. Um, so yeah, those those are my that's my three guys: uh, Harrison Barnes, L. Horford, and Eric Gordon. If you have any more, I would absolutely love to hear them. Um, this is this is exactly what the Pistons should be doing: is renting out their cap space for picks. And so, sure, give me more, give me some more options. Yeah. So, I, well, I was first going to say like, there's no like actual free agents you've looked at that you actually want them to sign. I think it's it's pretty clear that they shouldn't be like throwing the bag at Fred Van Fleet. But it feels like yeah. if, if you have some money to play around with like do you go after like one of the younger guys like youngish guys like a does a Malik Beasley just not appeal do you try and go after Josh Jackson as like a, a third draft guy if you want to call him that at this point <laughs> I like that third draft um I, th- I think all the guys that I'd be interested in would come in at like the mid-level or less and so I'm less worried about the use of cap space for those guys right like uh, I have some interest in DeAnthony Melton but uh but I don't know that DeAnthony Melton is going to get like more than the mini mid level from anybody. Um, I have some interest in Nerlens Noel, but you know Nerlens Noel and 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 Harry Giles, who I think the the Kings declined his fourth year option. He's he's an unrestricted free agent. Um, but both of those guys are um, you know are backup big men in a league where backup big men are not very valuable. Neither one of those guys is going to break the bank. Um, I have you know some interest in Chris Dunn. Um, you know, all defense, all NBA defensive candidate like Chris Dunn. Um, but like that, but defense makes you less money than offense. And so like, I, again, I think he'd be in like the DeAnthony Melton, like mini mid-level range. Um, who else? There was, there's a couple other guys. Um, Malik Beasley is like, he's not the same player as Luke Kennard, but like, you know, three point shooting two guards who don't defend, um, like, I'm, you know, I don't want two of those guys. And Mm so uh, I'm don't, I used to have a lot of interest in Malik Beasley back when he was like playing defense and now not so much. Um, Yeah. I'm yeah. Just like this, this team needs to tinker around the edges. And so like, sure. Like a Josh Jackson for the minimum. Why not? Um, You, you look at like uh, bringing in like a DJ Augustine to be like a, a mentor to the draft to the point guard you draft like sure uh be, you, and you're assuming that like derrick rose is gone in uh what would normally be february um like sure you, you want an old head point guard around like i have no problem with that if uh if you you want an old head big man around right like um you can always find a guy like a like a Dwayne deadman right or mm-hmm. is uh aaron baines is an option right uh he's he's a straight on free agent Okay, I would, yeah, I would like, I'd take Aaron Baines back in a heartbeat to teach Thon Maker. And I still Justin remember Hyde. when Stan Van Gundy was like, "Yeah, we're not going to be able to keep him." I was like, he was so open that season about Baines, and I think that was the KCP free agency year too. 
I love yeah. the sound bites coming from him. Sorry, that was a random aside. No, is no the worst thing that reminded me that he paid Boban seven million to be the third string center. It's just like why? So many unforced errors. That's the story of the Stan Van Gundy era. Just unforced. Future errors. head coach of the Clippers. That's actually not going to happen. But I think. Oh, I hadn't thought about that, but I like that a lot actually. Um, the names I had given to, like not free agents, like looking at trade targets, is I sort of wondered. Mostly because I'm not sure like what the sal- the actual salary dumping market oh, is going to be. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, last guy, like you do the same thing as everybody else, where you like slap a four year max in front of Brandon Ingram, let the Pelicans match, and like you don't care about the cap spaces, whatever. But like on the like two percent chance you could get Brandon Ingram to come here, like you absolutely like try for it. Um, I, I, yeah, some teams should do that. And if it's Detroit where like, you're not anxious to use your cap space and you just want to tie it up for 48 hours, I think it, it now is like, uh, do it. I'm, I'm a hundred percent in the do it. The, the actual free agent, one of the free agents I thought about for them was, uh, Wes Awundu from Orlando. He's restricted and like, he's not the greatest shooter, but he showed that he could hit some stuff off the dribble and he gives you a lot of positional range on defense. I've named him as like teams like as a target for teams that even have like the the mid-level just because i I think orlando really likes him probably more so than ever with the following the isaac injury he seems like the perfect orlando player so it's like i don't know (laughs) if they'd be willing to let him go just as like a guy who like is long and athletic and plays defense and doesn't really Uh, shoot like i'm sorry a a rangy wing with a questionable jumper has sam presti written all over it (laughs) oh that's a good point actually yeah um i actually have him i think i feel like the pacers might make a run at him but that's the free agent stuff is like it's sort like if they can take like those type of gambles and you mentioned some already like they're either cheap or like the younger guys i don't think you throw an offer at Malik Beasley he's probably too expensive to poach but like if you know the kings are going to match like bogey like i would absolutely just try and drive up the price on him that's a risky game because if you end up with him um yeah that's a problem and this isn't <laughs> this isn't the climate like where the nets were like yeah we're going to give whatever to Otto Porter Jr and Tyler Johnson and Alan Crabb, and then we're going to end up with two of those three guys anyway in the future. Um, I, I look forward to Otto Porter Jr. getting to Brooklyn at some point. Uh, so there's probably risk there. Brandon Ingram's like a no-brainer, um, but after him, it's kind of like, you know, if you try to drive up the price tags on restricted free agents, you might end up with that restricted free agent. <laughs> right. Or like, even like unrestricted guys, like, like sure, we could call up Joe Harris and be like, hey, Joe, like, do you want to like be the like best version of Steve McKaylee possible for, <laughs> you know, $12 million a year? And it's like, yeah, we could absolutely do that. But like, what what's the marginal difference for that for right. this team? And it, it's not, it's just not very high. And so, yeah, like it's, it's, it's kind of tough playing the free agency game for the Pistons. This is part of why, uh, content for the Pistons is so hard. It's just cause like, Oh, we can't even do anything sexy. It was like, Oh man, like, right. let's, let's bring in Nerland's Noel. It was like, that's, that's the clickbait. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, that can probably only generate so many eyes. I've thought more along the lines of like, can they latch on as like a third party in a trade or is, is there a team that's out there that that's kind of looking to create cap space. And the one that I kind of zeroed in on, this would be more so for just straight up cap space is like Dallas um, has the potential to get cap space. Um, even if Tim Hardaway Jr. Opts in, should they be able to like dump some of their like middle rung price deals? And so like you look at a Dwight Powell and a DeLon Wright, like what kind of cop compensation do you need to take on those sorts of deals? Or are you like kind of involved as the third party facilitator in a bigger deal where it's like, I feel like, you know, in a Golden State deal, like, I don't know what type of compensation you would need to take on in, in Andrew Wiggins, but like, let's say a Milwaukee where there's like an Eric Bledsoe um, and you end up with him. 
like what type of compensation would you be looking for in those types of situations? And just as like a, so Dwight Powell has three years and 33.2 million left and he's coming off an Achilles injury. Delon Wright, who's like a quality player has two years and 17.5 left. Yeah. Uh, I would be interested in Delon Wright for sure. Is that someone you take on without like needing real compensation for? Uh, you would need like some, I think, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, Dallas owns like a future Pistons second, and so I'd probably try and get that back. Um, and but like, would I need like a first to take on Delon Wright? Like, no, I can you know you could do you could do some seconds, you could do a fake second, like one of those top fifty five protected seconds that like don't ever actually turn into anything. They have Golden um, State's twenty twenty second. I don't that number thirty one seems like that might be a that little seems, steep. Yeah, that's, that seems like a high price. You probably asked for that, but but don't end up getting it. Um, as far as Eric Bledsoe goes, I've talked to my dear friend Ty Windish about Eric Bledsoe uh, multiple times. Eric Bledsoe would join the long, long list of uh, Milwaukee Bucks to Detroit Pistons uh, highway pipeline, um, joining luminaries like Thon Maker, Tony Snell. Uh, let me see if I can do this off the top of my head. Justin Patton was actually in the uh, – he played for the Bucks G League team. Uh, Brandon Knight played for both teams. Uh, Brandon Jennings played for both teams. Uh, come on. Ersan Ilyasova. Uh, I can. Oh man, Did you say Middleton Chris, yet? Chris Middleton. Yeah, yeah there we go. That's the big one. Uh, there's there's more. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, there's there's a long history of a, of a Milwaukee to Detroit uh, connection. Um, but for to take Bledsoe, he is I at would, he has three years and fifty four point four, but the final year is like three point nine guaranteed. So he's really at like two years and it's sub forty. Yeah, I would I would still need a first. Uh, just because not necessarily because like Bledsoe is an objectively terrible player or anything, but because like you're doing a division rival, a favor, you're doing a championship contender, a favor. Mm-hmm. It's like you like, no, I want the, the Brogdon first, right? The, they have a first from Indiana this year. I think that's it, top 20. You, you'd want that. I think that becomes helpful. Like if they want to go after Chris Paul and OKC doesn't want to take on long-term money and they're like, well, we already have a trillion first round picks anyway. Uh, if you're willing to find a home for Eric Bledsoe and like they don't want like if they're like that first round pick, let's say the Bucks are giving up another one, like a 2024 first round pick, or they're also giving up Dante DiVincenzo, OKC might be able to talk to them into like, yeah, just give us like your poo-poo platter of expiring contracts and then find another home for Eric Bledsoe. And so, yeah. Um, or you mean like you could do something like, hey, like, you know, OKC, like we'll send is like uh, we'll send you the final year of Tony Snell's deal. And uh, you sorry, he's us- too good of a shooter for OKC. Try again. <laughs> Or like you, you give us like the one of the like four first you got for Paul George, right? Like one of those, like the the like Miami twenty twenty one first or whatever, right? Like remember sure. when that was considered like one of the tastiest trade chips in the league, and now it's like, oh, <laughs> that pick is gonna <laughs> suck. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but like, yeah. So you, you know, I would, I'd be, I wouldn't be uh, mad at something like that. Uh, your last guy was Wiggins. Wiggins I, is it, it was kind of like a yeah reluctance because I don't know like when you think of Warriors trade package like yes they have the trade exception but like if you want to get like a real player or something that's you know if, if they're going to go like big blockbuster and dangle both Minnesota's pick and this year's number two pick like I, it's not just you're not getting back a player that just fits into that trade exception or even step laddering it and so that's where Andrew Wiggins salary gets so interesting like what if they want to pull off a mega deal is the one I keep throwing out like they can try and get Oladipo and Miles Turner from Indiana because you just have those two ridiculously high picks and you have the ability to match money. But it's like, 
Indiana could probably talk themselves into like building up Wiggins because they do that with every single wing that they get, apparently. But at the same time, it's like Andrew Wiggins is owed three years and like $94 million, I believe is the number. I'll double check that to make sure I'm not wrong. But he's at three years and $94.7 million. Yeah, I don't. It'd be really weird to take Andrew Wiggins because <laughs> I, I really wonder like if you could flip Wiggins again later down the road. Um, I, you know, he's still only what, like 25, 26. And so you're like 11 or something. That's obviously wrong. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. But, but he, he, he's a known quantity, but, uh, he's going to be entering what will be his like athletic prime. Um, and so like, I've seen some very odd scenarios, right? You've seen like, oh, like, uh, you, you trade Blake to, you know, uh, golden state. I don't know how that would work with Draymond, but like, sure, like, you know, that that's how they get uh, another like all NBA player uh, in there. Um, I would I would be interested in taking on Wiggins, but like it would come because of the money and the years, it would come at a very heavy price. It wouldn't necessarily be this uh, this number this year's like number two pick, but like that Minnesota first for sure. Uh, yeah, I don't know if they would ever be in a position where they'd offload it like straight. For, I mean, I would agree from the Pistons' perspective if you're eating that much, if it was just straight cap space or something, um, mm. you obviously need something like that. I would rather the Minnesota pick. I think that's actually the more valuable asset than the number two pick. Uh, but I, I don't even know what Golden State's like thinking in that regard. So um, I think the first two names for me, and then I had Eric Gordon listed, but you already talked about him. But I agree with you. I think that's what the Pistons should be looking to do with their cap space. I'm just curious to see how aggressively teams are looking to dump contracts this summer yeah and you know with with the global pandemic with a lot of teams with a lot of owners who are facing you know various levels of uh, economic uncertainty i do think there there's like a big possibility that we see some contracts dumped and uh luckily tom gores's money is not in anything tangible i think he does like uh he's like a uh he does real estate and uh, some other like less uh, shady stuff that uh, we don't that we've actually that we've actually talked about on the site. Um, but uh, but yeah, like he he's not hurting for money, right? Like he's not in he's not in like you know physical locations in the way that like Tillman Fertitta or or, or uh, Herb Simon are. And so like I don't think Tom Gross is gonna be hurting for money anytime soon. They bought a G League team like during all this, so it's like right. oh, okay, yeah, Tom Gross is fine. Shout out to the Suns, by the way. Definitely makes sense to sell your G League team. Um, so I think this is the question that's probably just most interesting to Pistons fans. Maybe they're tired of it at this point. Who, like, what is the ideal scenario for the team at number seven? So the ideal scenario for the team at number seven is Killian Hayes. Um, that's the easy answer, but it's also the correct answer. I think um, you're, I know he's been like a favorite of like the Pistons Twitter, but I, I think you've been pretty like thoroughly and aggressively driving his bandwagon, if I'm not mistaken. That would be correct. Okay. Yes. I've been, I've been driving his bandwagon since, uh, you know, since last season um, when he was playing for Cholet. Uh, but like you look at a guy with his profile, a, a six, five left-handed three level score at the point guard position, who is also not, who was also a good defender with the potential to be like a great team defender mm-hmm. uh, who shot, you know, 89% from the line who also comes with like a prepackaged elite level skill in his passing ability. Like, I don't understand why that guy would drop to seven, especially in this year's draft, but it looks like he might. And so if he's available, you should absolutely take him. Right. Um, after Killian Hayes, things get a little dicier. 
uh, there is a segment of Pistons fans that would, you know, grab the sure thing in like an an, an Onyeka, a Kongwu, or an Obi Toppin, right? Like guys mm-hmm. that you know are going to be effective players at the NBA level. Probably not stars, but effective players. Um, there's a segment of Pistons fans that would really like to swing for a home run, right? These are the guys who want like Patrick Williams out of Florida State or uh, Pokashevsky, Alexis Pokashevsky, right? I think that's how you say his I'm name. I'm going to trust you because I'm only like, I'll say shin deep in draft coverage at this point right now. <laughs> right. Um, there's, uh, and then Troy Weaver said something interesting during his introductory press conference when obviously he was getting asked about like his draft philosophy since he's known as like this uh this master drafter from his time in okc um he said we draft uh we draft people not players so he's looking for you know good human beings and so when you look at like excellent human beings like tyrese halliburton and isaac okoro like those guys are like just a one uh, human beings. There's been, you can find, there's like a report and uh, there's a piece in the athletic about how like Tyrese Halliburton could be like the mayor or like the governor of Wisconsin. Like if he wanted to be like later in his career, uh, very much like a Malcolm Brogdon type, not necessarily like in on court skill, but in just in like the way he handles himself and the way he's like appreciated in the locker room and the positive uh, vibes he brings to, to wherever he's at. And so, um, there's, there's a lot of, and I, like, I have heard, from people who would know things that the Pistons like are looking very deeply like at a Tyrese Halliburton. And so like, you know, there, there are a lot of picks, but uh, Killian Hayes is the guy who's always uh, stood out to me, but the Pistons will have a lot of options at seven, you know, they'd have more options if they were at five, like they were supposed to be, but, <laughs> but it is what it is. Right. Yeah. The, the Killian Hayes from just what I've know and the, pre- the preliminary, very little research I've done uh, his like shooting splits, like, kind of scare the crap out of me just based on i know he's you know he's still young but like the um like his three professional seasons like you know shoots barely doesn't shoot threes his first years at 19.2 percent in his second and 39 percent in his third which is certainly encouraging but he just still wasn't taking them at like this huge clip um so i'm yeah i think it was it was actually lower right like the 39 is from euro league right that's right, only euro cup which was yeah, only euro 10 cup. games yeah, and so when he played in the BBL, I think he shot uh, like in lower, like in the twenty nine, like thirty one uh, range. But the splits are what's interesting with Killian. He's a very good off the dribble shooter, which is the more valuable skill, obviously. It's like He's the most. Really, I feel like the off the maybe it's like three point specific, but the off the dribble jumper feels like the most important shot in the league right yeah. now, especially for a point guard, right? Yeah, for especially, sure. Especially, yeah. And, but he's a really terrible uh, catch and shoot three point shooter, and like for a variety of reasons, right? Like his his rhythms all off. Um, he shoots uh, off the hop sometimes. He shoots off the one two sometimes. Um, he doesn't like hold his follow through all the way sometimes. Uh, it's just like it's 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 things you know that you know with time and like with a good shooting coach, like you can improve upon. And so, like, I am really bullish on him figuring out, like, the catch-and-shoot thing. But that's also not, like, a deal-breaker for me because I don't, don't really want my point guard taking a lot of catch-and-shoot threes anyway. I right. want my point guard, like, dribbling and attacking and passing and doing all the things that Killian Hayes is actually, like, really good at. And so, like, that's, that's why I'm, like, less afraid of, like, what uh, what Killian Hayes has to offer. Instead of, like, 
you know, and, you know, you compare him to Tyrese Halliburton, and we I do that very often because those are the two guys who are kind of like mocked as like those uh, the the second and third best like point guards available in this year's draft. Halliburton was an extremely good catch and shoot three point shooter for a point guard, um, which is like again like not as valuable and just like a really poor off the dribble shooter uh, in general uh, for his career at Iowa State. And Halliburton, I think, had like a he was the he was the point guard, but he had like a sub twenty or close to 20 usage rate on the season. And like, he was like Iowa state's like only good player. And so like, I'm, I'm very dubious of like how effective, like he's going to actually be at the uh, NBA level, especially Mm -hmm. for a team who needs playmaking and ball handling like the, uh, like the Pistons do. But you know, like if he's an excellent, uh, if he's an excellent like human being and an excellent role player, um, maybe he helps facilitate like you bringing in a non point guard star and like that kickstarts things. So you know, you you don't know, but yeah, I would I would go with Killian. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that a bunch to this conversation. I'm gonna say a bunch of nice things about people and then just circle back to like I would rather have Killian. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the final thing I have to ask you, and I've already kept you way longer than I thought I would, which is I feel like a repeat phrase for me whenever I have a guest on. What's one thing uh, something that's like misinformed about this team, undercovered, underappreciated, underrepresented? Or what's just something you'd like to talk about that I did not ask you that I should have asked you? Uh, I think something that like only people would like we we hinted at it a little bit earlier, but something that I think only uh, like people in Detroit like really noticed and cared about was uh, was the G League team, right? Like I spent a lot of time like watching the G League team this year because of uh, Seku Dubuya's uh, development mm-hmm. and and how he spent the first part of his year in Grand Rapids. Um, I grew enamored with the uh, professional coaching staff and uh, like the way that they were utilizing the talent they were given. Um, the Pistons, you know, had a couple of two-way guys and Jordan Bone and Lewis King that um, I think deserve uh, rotation shots next year. It's so, like that's really intriguing, and you have to give uh, again Donnie Tindall a lot of credit for for those guys' development. And, uh, you know, like I said, Tom Gore's bought a G League team, right? Like the Pistons G League team is going to move to downtown Detroit, just like the team in 2021-22. There, ha- there hasn't been any any delays or anything on that front because of, of COVID. I think they're still uh, constructing the brand new arena. Um, uh, it's a very small arena downtown. Um, and and so the, the G League team will no longer be in Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. I think that's really big for development, um, especially – a team that's going to be, you know, rebuilding as the Pistons are, it's really easy for a guy like, uh, for a future guy like Sekou Dumboya to like, you know, practice with the, with the G league team, then, you know, ride across the street essentially and like dress for an NBA game or, uh, you know, you get in multiple practices, right? Like you, the NBA, the NBA doesn't practice as often. You're able to go practice with the G league team and, and work on your skills, uh, that way. And so like, uh, I think that's a that's an underrated aspect of like what a a rebuilding team uh, needs. I think it's something that Dwayne Casey especially knows the value of from the development success that that is and continues to be Raptors nine oh five. And so uh, that's something that I'm just kind of keeping my eye on. Like uh, you know, and having said all that, like is there going to be a G league season next year? Like, I don't know. G league is a loss leader for the NBA, right? They, so it's like, will will the owners want to pony up for something that like, doesn't want to, doesn't make them any money Mm -hmm. and that nobody watches and that they can't even have 
uh, fans and arenas for? Like, I, I don't know. So, but like, it's something that vastly improves the product. So, like, are they going to do it? it? It remains to be seen. But like, yeah, the the G League team, I think, is a, is an underrated aspect of what this uh, this Pistons franchise has going. Yeah, I think the one thing you mentioned that I just love is just being able to you could play in the G League games and then just just be like go to practice with the pro team or just be back with them. And like the Nets have done that with like some of their higher. Like they haven't had these like higher profile young guys, but they've done it with a lot of their younger guys. But like that was a like a normal for like Nicholas Claxton to do that, or or even like a Kurutz or or uh, Musa did that as well. And so having that look, having the option is better than not having the option. Phoenix is all I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Pistons fans were wondering if like it's like, hey, we bought the Julie team. Do we get Jalen the Q? Like no, <laughs> we we do not get Jalen the Q. Sadly. <laughs> Uh, the G League is weird with stuff like that, where you just have like players that are, but they're like playing with other G League affiliates, but they're not like members of those G League affiliates. That whole thing is it's less confusing now because so many teams have G League squads, but it's still like kind of into the weeds stuff. Yeah, it 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 remains amazing to me that like teams don't value development as much as uh, you you think they should, especially since like the the cost is so cheap. Right. Like the they bought the G League team for, I think, like like less than ten million dollars. And so it was like you could you could pay the last year of Tony Snell Snell's deal or you could have a G League. Like, <laughs> that, that seems like that seems like a really easy decision to me. Right. Well, I mean, when you put it in those terms, like that's a no brainer. Yeah. Well, yeah. Laz, thank you so much for this. For anyone who does not already follow you on Twitter, they need to remedy that immediately. Follow him at Laz Chance. That's at L-A-Z-C-H-A-N-C-E. He is an editor for Detroit Bad Boys. He is also the host of the Pistons vs. Everybody podcast, a fellow Blue Wire podcast. Follow that podcast on Twitter at Pistons vs. Pod, spelled exactly as it sounds. Laz, thank you again so much for giving me a bunch of your time. And rest assured, whether you like it or not, I will be pestering you again down the line. No, Dan, I, I would be happy to have you pester me down uh, down the line sometime. Um, you are taking me away from the fact that, you know, the Aces are losing terribly right now. So I appreciate it. <laughs> Anything I could do to help. I will talk to you <laughs> soon. Thanks again. Thanks, Dan. Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.